Thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 142, A Study in Darkness. The place, Paris. The date, March 11th, 1944. The Nazis have occupied the City of Lights for four long years. Fear and hunger have become the Parisian slot. And the unknowns, who would disappear next from the streets, and at times, where would their next meal come from? Still, a normalcy of a kind had settled over the streets of Paris, even those not occupied by Nazi officials. In the upscale part of West Paris of the 16th District, that includes the Arc de Triomphe, a townhouse had been emitting smoke for the last few days. Yes, it was March of 1944, and people were using fires to keep themselves warm, but there was something different about the smoke. It stank, like meat that had been cooked, but only after going bad. It wasn't long before an elderly couple across the street informed the police. After all, the fire inside could get out of control, for clearly no one was attending it, which meant the entire neighborhood was at risk. Soon, two French policemen arrived on bikes. Unable to force their way into the building, they asked around and soon found out that the townhouse belonged to a family doctor by the name of Marcel Petiot, though he lived in another part of the city. Further diligence from the patrolman turned up the doctor's residence and his phone number. A call was placed. Dr. Petiot was soon on the line. The policeman explained the situation. Have you entered the building? The voice asked. The policeman replied that they had not forced any openings. Don't touch anything. I will bring the keys immediately. Yet 30 minutes went by and still... No, Dr. Petiot. So the policeman called the fire department, who sent a truck over. The leader of the fire brigade used a ladder to reach the second story and broke a window, thus gaining entrance. The corporal, followed by two of his fire team, followed the stench downstairs to the basement, and there one of the coal stoves was still blazing. When it was opened, what was left of a hand, almost fell out. On a pile nearby were other human remains. A rib cage, a skull, severed arms and legs. Between these sites and the even stronger stench below, the three men left the structure hurriedly. So one of the patrolmen then entered the basement, took in the same sites, and like the firemen, ran out of the building and called headquarters. With such a commotion, there was soon a crowd gathering around the building's entrance. Just then, a respectably dressed man of medium height arrived on a bicycle. He told the fire chief that he was the brother of the owner and demanded to be allowed access to the premises. As things stood in occupied Paris, strangers were treated with wary respect, as one never knew who they were or who they were connected to. The fire chief was about to let the man pass, but then one of the patrolmen joined them. The stranger 
took both men in with his eyes, and then whispered, "'Are you good Frenchmen?' The policeman, taken aback, answered, "'What kind of question is that?' as if the two men were insulted by the mere possibility that they were not loyal to France. But the stranger never wavered in his intensity or conviction. Then listen carefully. What you see there are bodies of Germans and traitors to our country. He then asked if their superiors had been contacted. Both men said yes. That is a serious mistake. My life is at stake, as are the lives of several of my friends who serve our cause. It was only then that the brother of the building's owner said that he was the commander of a French resistance group, and back at his own home, he had almost 300 files of fellow resistors. It was only a matter of time before the French police, or worse, the Germans, expanded their investigation into this and discovered his involvement and those files. He ended with, I must destroy them, the files, at once. The fire chief and patrolman stared at each other, as both were good Frenchmen. Neither wanted the Germans to get those files, or question this man. So they told him to leave, now, and that they would not inform their superiors of this conversation. The stranger left straight away. The next day, the patrolman would come across a photo of the building's owner. It had been the man they had talked to and let go, Marcel Petiot. But going back to the previous night, before the patrolman figured out his mistake, the police station had called Commissioner George Victor Massou, chief of the criminal brigade. As he was being called at home, at 10 p.m., he knew, before picking up the receiver, that it had to be something serious. Still, the voice on the other end left out most of the details, that it was just important that he get to the building as fast as he could. In fact, a car was already on the way to pick him up. As the commissioner was being taken to Petio's townhouse, he came within view of the Eiffel Tower and the Arc de Triomphe. Both, as well as other landmarks, all had massive Nazi flags hanging from them, a sign of the times. Massou reached 21 Rue Les Soeurs and entered the building. Right away he could see that this Marcel Patiot was a collector of fine art. Some rooms were stuffed with it. However, most of the house had not been cleaned in some time. It was a study in duality, fine furnishings, yet in disrepair, covered in dust. Massou had been warned by the officer of the ghastly things inside before he entered, but the commissioner told the younger man he had seen it all. But after viewing the parts of a ribcage, a woman's probable torso, and another body that was missing its internal organs, he realized how wrong he was. Turns out there is always something more. After Commissioner Massou collected himself, he and two other detectives ventured into a small building around back. There, the front room was in much better shape and seemed to be an active receiving room. However, down the hallway from this room, and there were two doors in between and one had been heavily locked, 
was a small windowless room. It had an iron cot against one of the cement walls, but what gave Masu the creeps was that in each corner a iron hook was attached to the wall about one meter from the ceiling. What would be hung from that? On the other side of the room was another door, but when the men tried to open it, it would not give. Finally, a crowbar was used, and when the door was opened, there was only wall there. The door and the doorknob were fake. Why would a fake door be needed? Masu turned around and only then noticed that the door that they had come through had no handle on this side. The last odd detail to the room they discovered that night was when a section of the wallpaper was torn away, a small peephole was visible. Masu told himself that this could easily be where the victims had spent their final hours. But it was in the main building that someone was trying to destroy the latest evidence. Thinking this had to be the worst of it, the men continued examining the premises. Once they were out again into the courtyard, they entered an old carriage house, now filled with tools of all kinds. But at the rear of this building was a sliding door. It took some effort to get it open, but once that was done, they were looking at a relatively small room that had a massive hole in the floor, a pit of some kind. Above this hole was a pulley that looked well-maintained. At the end of the pulley was a hook, and at the end of that was a noose. The smell that came up from the pit informed the men of what had to be down there. More bodies. Still, Masu went to the edge and, seeing a ladder, began to climb down. When he reached the bottom, he found himself sinking into quicklime and decomposing bodies, rather, pieces of bodies. Regardless of what Hollywood movies demonstrate, quicklime was not used to speed up the decomposition process, but rather to cover the smell of the rotting corpses. After looking around, once he was above ground again, Masu could see for himself that the majority of victims were here, not in the house. They must have been, again, only the latest to meet their fate. Now that he was outside, the commissioner let the questions flow over him. Who would do this, and why? Was it the owner, one Dr. Petio, or someone that used this place, or someone that worked for the doctor? And was it just murder, as in getting rid of certain people for specific reasons? But the biggest question was, was it just murder? Why were the bodies cut up? What was gained by this? Enjoyment? Revenge? If what the supposed Dr. Petio had said on the phone was true, that the victims were Germans or collaborators. Either way, the bodies or pieces would have to be brought out and counted, and hopefully identified. More besides, was this a Nazi operation? But no, that did not feel right to Masu. The Germans would not have to hide such things. That was what their camps were for, if all the rumors were to be believed. The questions just kept 
coming to Commissioner Massou, but no answers. And yet, when the police first arrived at the townhouse of Dr. Petiot, there was a sign on the door that read, Away for a month, forward mail to 18 Rue des Lombards, Usser. But Massou had not sent police there, nor to another address that was the property of the doctor. Why? Legal red tape. Back in December of 1799, a law had been passed that said no police could force entry of a citizen's home during the night unless there was a flood, fire, or the police were invited to come in. If the killer, regardless who it was, was at one of these locations, they probably would not invite the police in. But more than that, Masu did have to stay open to the possibility that this was the work of the Nazis. Well, more specifically, the Gestapo, the German state secret police. Under Hitler's Germany, they could practically do anything to anyone, and it was within the law. For one, there was the brutality of the crimes, something they were known for. And two, the Gestapo, indeed, as well as other German security agencies, were using the buildings around 21 Rue Le Seul, where the bodies had been found. There were enormous swastikas all around that part of town. Perhaps the townhouse was their dumping grounds, after all information was extracted. And if that was the case, then Massou would not be doing himself any favors by rushing into this. But if this was a German operation, such news as the bodies and their various conditions would surely have reached the Germans by now. And yet, no one came to tell him to drop the case, or even to proceed cautiously, as if they had no interest, and therefore no connection. Massou, instead, that night, just went home. The commissioner went to his office the next day, March 12, 1944. For now, his first task was to inform his immediate supervisor, the prefect of police, who would, in turn, inform the French and German authorities. In one way, this was good. First, he, the commissioner, would not have to talk to the politicians, and two, once the Germans were fully aware of what was going on, it would be interesting to see if he was told to back off. In the meantime, his staff worked industriously, gathering all the information they could on this Dr. Marcel Petiot. His life would be reconstructed as far as possible. That same day, Radio Paris reported on the bodies and identified the owner of the townhouse as Dr. Petiot. Further, that he was a resistance fighter, or, to the Germans, a terrorist, and that he had once again rejoined his faction. Massou heard the rumor around the police station that an established resistance fighter had been allowed to enter the doctor's house and then was allowed to leave again. But had this person vouched that Petiot was one of them? If he did, that would make the commissioner's life so much easier. He would have to find out. After briefing the prefect of police, Massou went through the ever-growing file awaiting on his desk of Dr. Petiot. The main suspect, for now, 
was born in 1897, had grown up 100 miles southeast of Paris. His mother and father had worked for a local post office. Ten years after his birth, Marcel was given a brother, Maurice. Sixteen years later, his mother required surgery for an ailment, but died during the process. From 1912 on, the two brothers were raised by their aunt, Henriette Gaston. As police detectives were sent to ask questions about Marcel, right away, older neighbors told of the young boy's cruelty to animals. He liked to pull off the heads of insects, and even his own cat perished at his hands. Masu assumed that some of these stories had to contain some truth, and if that was the case, then Marcel could be his man. The young Petiot read voraciously, but as he got older, focused on police novels, books about murder and murderers. As a teen, he had few friends and hardly any girlfriends. His teachers considered him intelligent, but not normal, and he was characterized as lazy. This laziness would be combined with his intelligence. As Marcel, still a teenager, tried to find ways of making money without working. Using a fishing pole and some adhesive, he was able to snatch letters from the very post office his father worked at. Perhaps he was looking for money or money orders. But after being evaluated by a psychiatrist, per French law, when he was caught, he was found to suffer from hereditary mental illness. It could have easily been the loss of his mother, and that his father had little to do with the boys after that. Either way, Marcel had a victim mentality in which the world owed him, and at the same time, he craved attention. Marcel continued his studies long enough to receive a secondary school diploma, By then, the Great War had come to Europe, and in early 1916, Marcel, seeking adventure, volunteered for the army. Being surrounded by such death and destruction, Marcel's opinion of all this was not recorded. In May of 1917, he was wounded, but it was suspected by many that it had been self-inflicted. The last two years of the war, the young Petiot was noted for increased mental imbalance, yet that was contributed to the war. That time was spent in either a hospital or a military jail, as he constantly, unabashedly stole from fellow soldiers. Again, his argument was that morality was a human construct. The authorities were not impressed. The three years right after the war, Marcel was in various mental hospitals, yet some of the doctors believed he was faking the symptoms. These he had learned through his readings. Still, he was soon out with a partial disability pension. Remarkably, Marcel had also entered medical school, taking advantage of an accelerated program for veterans. By 1921, he graduated from the University of Paris. Soon after, Dr. Marcel Petiot set up his own office, about 25 miles from the village he was raised in. His practice was soon thriving, as his demeanor was caring 
and forthright. War veterans got a discount, and Petio was known to ride his bicycle for miles to treat a patient who probably could not afford his full fee. Marcel helped them anyway and took whatever payment they offered. And yet the lazy and selfish boy was still there inside. And if that was the case, then maybe the cruel part was too. Each time that Petio saw a patient, whether they paid or not, or partially, he signed them up for public assistance without telling them. In other words, the good doctor was getting paid twice. Soon, into his own practice, the doctor bought a car and could be seen regularly at auctions, buying furniture for his new home. Those three years of medical school, where surely Marcel worked hard, were starting to pay off, but he was just getting started. In 1926, Petiot decided to enter politics by running for the mayor position in Villeneuve-sur-Yon. As he had gotten to know many of the people as their doctor, he easily won. Of course, he was still double-dipping when it came to payment for services rendered. Then he won another election for Yon's council general, roughly the same as a U.S. congressman. Marcel was on the rise. Going back to March of 1944, when the bodies had been discovered in Petio's townhouse during the afternoon, after Commissioner Massou spoke to his superior, the police had begun to question the nearby tenants. One lady said she sometimes heard screams late in the night. Their voices were always that of females. As to why she did not report this, she replied, this was occupied Paris. To call the French police on possible German activities was not the way to live a long life. As the premises had further been inspected, a second, though smaller, lime pit was discovered. As the police did not have the stomach to empty out the pits, grave diggers were hired. Another neighbor said that a man normally came to the house almost every day, sometimes dressed as a worker, sometimes in a nice coat, but it was impossible to tell if it was the same man, as he always had his hat pulled down low. It was in the building that Masu gathered more concrete clues. A gas mask was found, probably to help the killer deal with the smell as was a needle for injections. The question was, were there several injections before death came? Did the killer torment or rape his victims? Or did they only get one dose before they were chained to the wall and either tortured or allowed to starve to death? Still, more questions than answers. The searching continued throughout the house, but it was another find in the basement that gave Masu an idea of the extent of how busy the killer had been. In one cupboard, 22 toothbrushes, 22 bottles of perfume, and 22 combs were found, along with similar numbers of lipstick, face powder, and makeup. There were other items also there, 
But what Masu was guessing is that the killer would probably torture these women before killing them, but kept their belongings, though it had to be a risk to himself, as trophies or a scorecard. But that day of March 12, 1944, was complicated further when Masu found out that while he had been briefing the prefect of police, German officers had visited the townhouse. Before the day was out, the German official authorities left Massou a note that was, in effect, an order. Arrest Petio, dangerous madman. It was then that an officer called Massou at his desk to report that, in the doctor's hometown of Jan, in 1926, one year before he married Georgette, his current wife, his lover at the time, Louisette de la Vue, had mysteriously disappeared. The town still spoke of it. Two years earlier, in 1924, Louisette and Marcel had met, and he pursued her. Soon she moved in with him, but for the look of the thing, they told all that she was his cook and maid. According to gossip, Louisette soon found out that being wooed by Marcel was not the same thing as living with him. He would obsess over things she did not understand. He was compulsive, and that manifested itself in him always bringing things home from an auction. They were running out of storage room, in fact. His other annoying habit was womanizing. He soon had another girlfriend, and did not care enough to come up with plausible excuses about his absences or his failing interest in Louisette. And then, in May of 1926, she just disappeared. Supposedly, according to Marcel, she was so upset after a cantankerous screaming match that she just left without saying goodbye to friends or family. Nor did she contact any of them when she got to wherever she was going. The search for the missing young lady was called off after a few months. Still, some suspected the charming doctor and politician. One witness said she saw Marcel carrying a large wicker basket to his car, which could have been anything. But a few months later, a young woman's body was found in a nearby town. It was in a large wicker basket. And it was with hindsight that Masu made sense of this. The victim's head and limbs had been severed, and her intestines had been removed. Hey, Dad, what's this? Oh, that? Oh, that's an old Monopoly game, but it's a World War II Monopoly game. I thought you gave that away. Well, I did, kind of. Someone won, but the person never contacted me, so I didn't get their information. What are you going to do with it? Well, I guess we should try to give it away again. Is that a good idea? Yeah. All right, everybody, you heard her. So here's what we're going to do. If you could send me an email 
to wwiipodcast at gmail.com. And this time in the subject line, if you could put Monopoly and maybe the number two, just so I'll know this is the second go around, put everybody in a batch uh, at the end of this month, uh, do a drawing with the girls, and uh, again, try to give this thing away. So that and that's just my way of thanking you for uh, putting up with me. Another show will be coming out soon. Sorry that I'm still behind on the membership, but I'm almost there. And uh, yeah, so we'll just give this away and maybe give away a couple of other things as a, you know, a way to thank you and uh, try to have some fun with it. Um, not that I think that a serial killer in Paris is um, fun, but you know, maybe some of you do. So we're gonna give it away. Does that sound good? Yeah. All right. See you soon, everyone. Bye bye.